This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. This morning, to Isaiah chapter 49. Take a moment for you to find that, Isaiah chapter 49. I'm going to be reading from verse verse 8 of Isaiah 49. In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. I will preserve you, and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages, that you may say to the prisoners, go forth, to those who are in darkness, show yourselves. And they shall feed among they shall feed among the roads, and their pastures shall be on all desolate heights. They shall neither hunger nor thirst, neither heat nor sun shall strike them. For he who has mercy on them will lead them. Even by the springs of water he will guide them. I will make each of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be elevated. Surely these shall come from afar. Look, those from the north and the west, and these from the land of Sinan. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out and sing in O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. Now note this. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. And God answers, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Imagine, if you will, a magnificent building. Say the Taj Mahal in India, or perhaps the Parthenon in Greece, or maybe the Pyramid of Giza in Egypt. And imagine it, visualize it from different perspectives. Think about it as a, as a beautiful photograph or perhaps as a, an intricate, skilled model. Or better still, you are literally there seeing it with your own eyes. Now, what do you suppose would be the best perspective? The photograph, even though it would be professionally shot on the best resolution camera, maybe even appearing in geographic magazine or in a travel brochure, the scale model, maybe out of ivory or silver that would be meticulously carved with the greatest skill of a craftsman, 
And even though it would be more dimensional than the one-dimensional photograph, but yet there's no... You don't see the sheer magnitude of what you're looking at. You just get a scaled-down model. Or you are there literally looking at it with your own two eyes. And you see all of the beauty and the splendor of it and the magnitude of it. A couple of years ago, Sally and I went to Iceland. I was interested in the topography of the land for photographs. I remember spending some time standing at Gullfoss uh, Waterfall, which means Golden Waterfall. I've been to Niagara, but this just was breathtaking. It's huge. It's more than you can ever even imagine. You have to be there. And I took lots of photographs where people up on the standing right at the top is like little pin dot, dots. But you've got to be there to see that. It gives you an entirely different perspective when you see it with your own eyes. This is like everything in life. Your perspective, your personal perspective, makes all the difference in how you see things. You either see things as they're supposed to be or you see things as they actually are. And how you see things in life determines actually how you handle things in life. What your perspective is makes all the difference. Alan Redpath, the late Alan Redpath, who was a Baptist pastor, he said something years ago that I never forgot. When he's talking about your circumstances of life and how you see them, he said, you either see God through your circumstances or you see your circumstances through God one or the other and how you see one or the other will largely determine how you will handle the circumstances that you face so you either see God through your circumstances or you see your circumstances through God and it makes all of the difference the perspective that you get. This was the problem with the people in Isaiah 49. They were looking at God through their circumstances. And their circumstances had been quite dire for a long time. Seventy years, in fact, in captivity. And they had forgotten how good God was and how merciful he was and how faithful he was and how trusting he was. They'd forgotten all of that. What did they say? But the Lord has forgotten me. The Lord has forsaken me. And so God, that's why we read those scriptures before. God was showing them that he hadn't forgotten them. He hadn't forsaken them, that he would take care of them, that he would bring them out of captivity, that he would bless them, that their life would change. But they were just looking at God through their circumstances. All of us from time to time view God through our circumstances. All of us from time to time, that's the lens that we see God through. 
And the trouble with it is when we do that, God is dim and distant. And we're not getting a right perspective. And God seems so small and uninvolved. God, God seems so small uh, and he seems to be not involved in what we are going through. And we forget how good he is. And so in the fog and the, and the cloud and the darkness and the, and the difficulty and the pain and, the, and, and whatever we're going through, that's the lens we see God through. And it's not good. But if we see our circumstances through God, then when that happens, it becomes conquerable, defeatable, manageable, doable. Hope rises up. Faith rises up. Because God, we've got him in perspective. In spite of the circumstances that surround us. And so... God is trying to encourage them. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child? Sure. She may forget. She may not have compassion in the son of her womb. Yet, I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you in the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I haven't forgotten about you. You're engraved in the palms of my hands. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you even unto the end, it says in another place. And so God was trying to change their perspective, how they were looking at him through their circumstances. And he wanted them to look at their circumstances through him. And that would just change everything. It may not necessarily change the circumstances, but it would change how they viewed the circumstances. And their hope would rise, and their faith would rise, and they would be encouraged. You remember way back in, in 1 Kings, in 1 Kings chapter 17, it says, Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now Ahab and his wife Jezebel, Ahab was probably the worst king that Israel ever had. Wicked, idolatrous, cruel. His wife Jezebel was the epitome of evil. Her name to this day conjures up evil. And the country was in a terrible state, far from God, worshipping idols. It was awful. And the prophet could see God in the midst of all these circumstances. And God had something to say and something to do. 
At this point, he wasn't finished with the nation. He would speak to them again. And so, Elijah said, there's going to be a drought. There will be no rain until I say so. I wasn't being a brag or big-headed about that. God had spoken to him. God had obviously given that command and the authority to do this. And sure enough, it did not rain. In fact, if you skip on to chapter 18, first verse, and it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. So this had lasted three years already. Saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab and there was a severe famine in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah who was in charge of his house. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Isn't that wonderful? Even though he served in the very household of one of the most wicked kings that ever lived in Israel, yet he was a godly man who feared God. For it was, for so it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them 50 to a cave and had fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go into the land to all the springs of water, to all the brooks. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we may not have to kill any livestock. So things were pretty bad. Sent them out throughout the land just to see if there was any wee water hole somewhere. So they divided the land between them to explore it. And Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went another way by himself. Now, as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him. And he recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is that you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered, It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. And so he said, How have I sinned that you're delivering your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there's no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to hunt for you. And when they said he is not here, he took an oath from the kingdom or nation that they could not find him. And now you say, go tell your master, Elijah is here. And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from you that the Spirit of the Lord will carry you into a place I do not know. So when I go and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Was it not reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, how I hid 100 men of the Lord's prophets, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell the master Elijah's here. He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely present myself to him today. So Abadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. And then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah. And Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and had followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel 
and gathered the prophets together in Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord, if the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. And then you shall call upon the name of your gods and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many. And call on the name of the Lord your God and put no fire under it. So they took the bill which was given them and they prepared it and called the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they leaped upon the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for, for is he a god? Either he is meditating or he's busy or he's on a journey or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. And so they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out of them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. And Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the numbers of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones, he built an altar and in the name of the Lord, he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he put the wood, wood in order, cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood and said, fill the four water pots with water, poured out upon the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned the hearts, their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now all the people saw it and they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. Wow, what a demonstration. What a convincing, mighty miracle of God. And the people, as one, recognized it as such. And then if you read the rest of that, you would see that Elijah said to Ahab, go, go on, he says, run. Because I hear the sound of abundance of rain. The rains are coming. What a mighty moment. 
amidst all of the circumstances of a land that was far from God, that was idolatrous, that had a wicked king and queen upon the throne, Elijah looked through all of those circumstances. He saw God, and he saw the circumstances in the light of seeing God. And God answered that mighty prayer. And so the word goes back. Chapter 19. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. (laughs) Now wouldn't you think, after seeing and hearing and knowing the power of God that fire came from heaven, that the prophets of Baal were slain with the sword, you would think that the king and queen would fall on their knees and cry for mercy, but no. No. She's too wicked. She's evil beyond words. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah and saying, So let the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Underline this. And when he saw that, and when he saw that, and when he saw that, his perspective totally changed. He's no longer looking at God. Now he's looking at his circumstances. And he totally changes. And when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life, went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left a servant there. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. Nothing has changed. It was a waste of time. All my effort, all my prayers, all my faith was useless. Nothing has happened. Nothing has changed. In fact, it's worse. They want to kill me now. And suddenly, his whole perspective has changed. Now he's looking at God through his circumstances. Instead of looking at his circumstances through God, as he had done in chapter 17 and 18. But if you read on that story, which we want, and you'll see that God... And his love and mercy and grace comes to the man of God, sends an angel, gives him food, gives him water, encourages him, tells him that he's still ministry left, that he's not finished, tells him that there's 7,000 that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal, things are not as bad as he thought they were, <clears throat> and that he had two kings to anoint, and he had another prophet to anoint in his stead. Remember the 10 spies? The 12, actually, that went out under the direction of Moses to spy out the land, Numbers 13, to see how the land lay, the land that they were to go in and possess. What was it like? Would there be large cities? Would there be villages? Would they be armed? Would they be prepared? How many would there be? What would their armies be like? So they were to reconnoiter. 
chose 12 spies. They went out. You remember what happened, of course, and how they saw that land flowing with milk and honey, a beautiful land. And they arrived at the place called Ashkol, that beautiful oasis. And there they get great, huge clusters of grapes that they could put on a shaft between their shoulders. There was that many, it was that lush. It was wonderful. But they also saw the children of Anak, children of the giants. And when those spies came back, those ten brought an evil report. They saw God through their circumstances. And they said, the children of Anak are there, they're giants. We are like grasshoppers in their sight. We're so small. We can't, we can't do this. But Caleb and Joshua said, we are well able to take this land. We saw it as a land flowing with milk and honey. We can take those giants. We can fight and win. We can battle this. We can have this. We can conquer this land. They saw the circumstances through God. Their perspective was entirely different. Those ten, it says, brought back an evil report because God had already promised them the land. Shouldn't even have been an issue. But to those ten, it was a big issue because they saw the big problems and the big giants. But Joshua and Caleb already believed the promise of God that he already given them to conquer the land. We're well able to take this land. We're well able to conquer this. It depends on your perspective, doesn't it? <clears throat> Way back in the book of Job, you remember how Job, you remember how he lost everything, his family, his cattle, his goods, his home, his health, everything was stripped from him. And how when he was sitting there scraping his sores with pieces of broken pottery, even his very wife said, curse God and die. And then the so-called comforters came. <laughs> Miserable comforters they were because the whole tenor of their approach to Job was, it's all your fault. God is punishing you for your secret sin. They were looking at God through Job's circumstances. They're saying, God's punishing you. Everybody thinks you're a righteous man, but now you've been exposed as a sinner and God's punishing you. Imagine having those coming to visit in the hospital. Yeah? If you weren't sick, you'd be sick after they left, wouldn't you? If you didn't have a sore head, you'd have one. Boys, I guess we'd give an aspirin a headache. (laughs) 
And so here's Job having to listen to this. And he's angry. Verse 1 of chapter 13, Behold, my eye have seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. Understand that Job didn't know what was going on. We do because we read the book. We know the end of the story. He didn't. But you forgers of lies, you're all worthless physicians. One translation says you're all quack doctors. <laughs> oh, that you would be silent, and it would be your wisdom. In other words, you'd be wise if you just shut up. That's what he's saying. That's paraphrasing. Now hear my reasoning and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God and talk deceitfully for him? Huh? You think you're God's spokesman delivering his message to me? Is that what you think? Will you show partiality for him? Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out? <laughs> or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. Will not his accidents make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? Your platitudes are proverbs of ashes and your defenses are defenses of clay. Hold your peace. Be silent. Shut up, that means. And let me speak. And let me come, and let me come on me what may. Why do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my hand, life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. Though he slay me, I don't understand what's going on. All I know is I haven't done anything. But I don't know what's happening. But I tell you this, miserable comforters, even if God was to kill me, I'm still going to trust him. It's a bit like the three Hebrew boys, remember in the fiery furnace. O king, our God is well able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. But if not, we're not going to bow down. We're still going to serve God. Different perspective, isn't it? And Job had a different perspective than these three. And we haven't time to go through the whole book and to read what happens, but God delivers him. Gave him twice as much as he had before. Gave him twice as many children as he had before. Gave him twice as many goods. Not selling about his wife. Ah. Remember in Luke 1, how the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, that beautiful, young, innocent, virgin maiden, and said, I have wonderful news for you. God highly favors you. And you're going to be pregnant. And that which will be born of you will be a holy one. Now, of course, she's espoused to Joseph 
kind of like us being engaged, only then it meant much more than that. It was, in fact, as good as being married, except the marriage wasn't consummated. But in all aspects, all other things, it was as good as done. And so the angel comes with this powerful, exciting, incredible message. But everybody knows the marriage hasn't been consummated. And so she looks at God through her circumstances. And who wouldn't in her position? How can this thing be? Seeing I know not a man. Now if I had if her marriage had been consummated and everybody knew that but it isn't. And I think Joseph would have something to say about this. And he did. In fact, he wanted to put her away privately. How can this thing be? I don't understand this. This isn't possible. There was no precedent. There was nothing she could look back to and say, well, it happened back then. Nothing. All she could see was circumstances. How could this work out? It's impossible. It's never ever happened before. It's never happened since. And all she could do would be look at God through her circumstances. And it was impossible. No human way for this to happen. But the angel said, the Holy Spirit shall overshadow you. And that holy one will be born of you, be the Son of God. And suddenly, her whole perspective changed. And she says, Be it unto me according to your word. It's all I've got to go on. Can't understand how it's going to happen. Wouldn't even begin to know how this is going to take place. But if God's given his word, then I'm going to trust his word. I'm going to believe him. In spite of not understanding humanly how this can take place, in spite of nobody can give me an explanation, I believe God. And suddenly now, in the midst of all of those circumstances, she sees God. And she trusts him to bring it about in her life. Did God do it? Yeah. Did she get that son? Absolutely. Was it supernatural? For sure. Is there any human explanation? Not at all. But she believed the word that was given. And she got a miracle. Your outlook determines your outcome. Your perspective makes all the difference. It's a battle. It's a fight. Your flesh will not agree. It will fight against it. It's our human fallen nature to do that. But if we can just 
look beyond and see God in the midst and say, God, you can do this. You and you alone can do this. Let me just maybe finish reading this. You know it well. <clears throat> My voice is, I don't know what's wrong with it this morning. It's a bit weak. Maybe I've been shouting at Sally too much all week. Is that the problem? Maybe we're having domestics all week, were we? Don't think so. All right, chapter 4 of Philippians, just as we close. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Isn't that amazing that Paul's writing this while imprisoned? And the whole book is referencing joy. Because he was looking beyond those circumstances and seeing God. And he's encouraging the Philippian church. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And then this helps us get our perspective right. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Your outlook determines your outcome. So what are your circumstances today? Are you looking at God through your circumstances? Is that the lens you look through? Are you looking at your circumstances through God? Is God the lens that you see through? Because that's going to make all the difference. The latter will cause you to have hope and faith and persevere and win through to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. I'm not in any way decrying your circumstances. The difficulties of life sometimes are exacting, sometimes are tremendous. But God never changes. His word never changes. His promises never change. Our circumstances continually change. But God remains faithful. 
Lord, sometimes we have to admit and be honest that we do not understand everything that happens to us or why it happens to us. Sometimes, Lord, we get confused or even angry. But Lord, in the midst of it all, you give us the grace to look up and see you and know that whatever we go through, your promise is that you never leave us or forsake us. That we can put our hand in the hand of the one who stilled the waters. And he will bring us through every and any adverse and difficult circumstance. So Lord, our grip is on you today. And we thank you for that. You are the anchor of our soul and will not be soon shaken because our anchor is firm and deep in the Savior's love, as the hymn says. And so we bless you for this. So help us this day to look at our circumstances through God and change our outlook so that the outcome will be better. This we pray in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.